0: Right out of the gate, one thing I noticed reading was the titles of the chapters. I looked at the table of contents, as I do when I'm cracking open any book, and I just, I wanna zoom out, and I want a good overview of, okay, what's the narrative here I'm about to step into? And I just love the names of your chapters. What human being acts this way is chapter one.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That is Ralph Barcy. Ralph is the Vice President of Global Inside Sales at Trey.io and a friend of the show. And I'm always excited when Ralph comes on the, (laughs) the podcast and perhaps no more so than in this episode because today we flip the script Meaning that Ralph grabs hold of the microphone and asks me the tough questions. And in this case, he asks me questions about my new book. New book is titled Sell Without Selling Out, A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms. And the book is being officially released today, February 22nd, the day that many of you are listening to this episode. So if you want a true seller's perspective on my book and the value that you'll receive from it as a seller or as a sales leader, then stay tuned. All right, let's jump into it. Ralph Barcy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. How are you? I am fine. How are you? I am doing, doing excited, very well. I'm excited, actually. I'm excited.
0: Me too. I always get excited talking to you.
1: Yeah. Well, there's that. Absolutely. Um I got this new book coming out. I'm excited about that. This is this is uh we're getting some great response. We were like number one new release on Amazon earlier this week. Yeah, those things come and go quickly because they update them. But for a, a moment in time, we were number one new release on Amazon uh, in our categories, which is great.
0: So, Well, congratulations. That's a, that's a, an exciting milestone. And, and I don't know, I'll be the first to say it. I don't think you're going to be number one for just a small pocket of time. I think <laughs> it'll only appreciate over time. So I'm well, not surprised
1: you. to hear that. Yeah, you've you've had the pleasure of. <laughs> I said that the pleasure of reading the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying yep. that for you. Sorry, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm excited. I think that um, yeah, you know, sort of a message whose time has come. So, um, yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Sure, sure. Well, you read it. What'd you think?
0: I did read it. I've got a ton of uh, questions, insights. I don't know. I I mean, we could flip the script and I can interview you about it, or I could share some of the takeaways that I had or a little bit of both. Let's do a little little bit of both.
1: If you have questions, I'm I'm here to answer them.
0: Well, um, first things first, uh, and not because I'm talking with you now, but I really enjoyed it because I felt its purpose and maybe its theme really... um, Resonated, And that is that it kind of disrupts what a lot of us have been taught or have experienced in our sales careers uh, about how to sell. And it, it just introduces a new, better way, frankly, of approaching prospects, listening to them, engaging them, helping them. Uh, getting a very, very clear understanding of what their story is and what it is that they're trying to accomplish and becoming a partner of theirs. I think that's Mm -hmm. a much better way and healthy way to sell and build relationships anyway. So I'm grateful for it. And I think the book is a breath of fresh
1: air. How about that? Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you nailed it though. I mean, it's, that's, yeah. I, I've just, I think as I talk about in the book, I arrived at this this point, or have arrived in the past at this point of this point of view about how to sell, as you so accurately described, versus sort of the traditional persuasion-based approach to selling that most of us are taught. And it, it came from the beginning just because I it just didn't resonate with me. I personally couldn't have done that, um, whether it was personality-wise or or whatever. And it sort of started me on this journey very early in my career of saying, well, there has to be a way, as I talk about in the book, is to make sales work for me as opposed to the other way around. Mm-hmm. And in the process then work better for my buyers. And you know, It's something that, that I'm sort of curious from, from your point of view. Is, is, I've been having this, having this conversation a lot with, with companies and with executives and leaders recently. I was like, okay, so how, would you, how much do you really know about your buyer's impression of what it is like to work with your salespeople? I mean, we get this indication all the time, is, is our win rates and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But how much do you really know? And my experience has been, as working with multiple companies, obviously as a consultant working with dozens and dozens of companies, very few ever sort of think to go out and say, Wow, we should try to quantify what that capture and quantify what that experience is, and what it means to us in terms of the decisions we make about who we hire and how we train them and enable them.
0: I've seen the same. You know, uh, I think a lot of companies, just starting with the onboarding process of account executives or sales development reps, those the onboarding curriculum typically centers on the company's history. You know, the iterations of the company's product offering. Uh, and rarely drills into problems that customers once had that we have since solved, mm-hmm. uh, where customers want to go from here, uh, you know, really focusing on use cases, case studies, knowing them cold. Uh, now, on the flip side, a lot of companies do do a great job of this, but I think most are the former Uh, at least in my experience, most of the former. And uh, I don't know, I think this is a new world where we can start switching things up a little bit. I had a question for you, though, before we go there. And that is, you know, was this a culmination of, you know, interviews you've had on your podcast, uh, you know, your years of selling, or was there just a specific catalyst event or epiphany uh, that occurred where you said, you know what, damn it, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and let people know how it should be done.
1: A little of all the above. I mean, it's third book. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the books tend to build on each other. But I think, yeah, part of it was driven by the podcast and and talking to so many different people, both on the podcast and outside the podcast, and coming to the conclusion that we're not getting any better at this. (laughs) That with all the advantages we have of technology and, and the like that have come into the sales space is that we're fundamentally not any better. And in fact, arguably, worse in some dimensions. I mean, if we look at, yeah, you know, I come out of a, a background prior to starting my consulting business years ago of selling really big systems. Uh, so this an enterprise primarily. Six, seven, eight, nine-figure deals. Um, and yeah, I measured myself. My, the key metric I was looking at was, what's my win rate? And so, what percentage of my qualified opportunities was I winning? And generally winning you know, about two-thirds of them. And then we look at surf, and this was not unusual. You know, I looked at the time, other you know, people I thought were being successful and, and not all selling exactly the same stuff. But generally, they were winning more than they were losing. And of their qualified opportunities. And as I talked to so many people on the show, especially people from the SaaS world, where it's sort of generally accepted that, hey, our win rates between 20 and 25% oftentimes, we're okay with that. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday, an interview, he was talking about a client he had that 17% average win rate across the company, they were good with that. Because they just kept feeding stuff into the top of the funnel. And at that point, I contend, you're not really selling, you're just playing the odds, right? Because you know yep. that a process produces a certain outcome rather than fix the process. Yep. But I asked the question of people, I said, so what's the value to you if you're a sales leader? What's the value to you of a 1% increase in win rate? And no one's ever been able to answer that question. <laughs> wow. Partly because they never think about it. Right? Because the emphasis tends to be is let's, let's, let's feed the top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. And my concern is that what we've done now is we've, we've told some sellers who are even hitting their numbers with 20 to 25% win rates, is we're saying, well, you're good at what you do because you've hit your number. And I look at it and say, no. Because your customers are saying that three out of four times I decided not to buy from you. And so if practice makes perfect and Mm -hmm. let's say you're only winning one of every four of your opportunities, what are you getting practice doing? (laughs) Losing. That's right. And how can that, if you're a salesperson, how can you accept that? I couldn't have accepted that. I can't accept that. I don't know how people do. Um, and I, so I think that, to my argument, good we sort of circling back to the top of the question you had is, yeah, I was motivated by the fact that we're not getting better, and arguably we're getting worse. And we have all these advantages, and we're not using it to help us get better.
0: Well, I'm grateful that uh, you invested the time to, to teach us and coach us on this. In fact, you, the book opens up dedicated to Vicki, a teacher, right, my wife. And I love that. I think you're a great teacher. And I think it's a good premise, uh, you know, or preface rather, when you open the book, and you see that kind of sets the tone that you, the reader are going to need to put on your learner's cap, while you thumb through these pages and and understand. And we'll talk about this, the four pillars, etc. But uh, I really like the teaching approach that you took.
1: Yeah, well, I I don't, look at myself as a trainer. I'm not a trainer. Uh, It's not the business I've come up with. You know, I don't, I, I do look at myself as, as a teacher, you know, one of the roles that I, I wear. Um, So I, I appreciate you bringing that, but also I just, yeah, my wife has been such a big influence because she's been a professor at NYU School of Medicine for a long time and as well as an associate dean there. And, yeah, I just remember I don't know, it was about 10, 11 years ago, we were at an end-of-year party for the graduating students. And um, you know, fourth year medical students getting ready to go to the residency, and and they were there with their spouses, and they had asked various faculty members to, to get up and speak. And yeah, you know, my wife is very dedicated to what she does. She's been teacher of the year. She's sort of like termed out for teacher of the year. They won't give it to her anymore. She's so passionate about it. But when they introduced her to speak, you know, she got the standing ovation. And I'm like, wow, that's impact, right?
0: Yo, big that's time.
1: That's impact. Is none of the other faculty did. She got it. And it's because she, she, she makes it personal. And she wants to see people do better. And that's what motivates me. That's why I'm you know, so sort of frustrated when I talk to people. And it's like, how can we accept this? Yeah. We can do better.
0: Well, we need more people like her. That's for sure. You know, someone who approaches their profession or their craft as if it's a vocation, It's you know, Mm -hmm. maybe it's why she's here.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. She, yeah, she, she could teach forever. If she was given the opportunity, she'll, she'll try to teach forever.
0: I love it. Well, there's a lot of ways we can, we can go through the book, Andy. And, um, you know, you stop me if if you don't want me to go deep on certain things, or if I've if I've missed <laughs> no no I,
1: I I love to be on the opposite side and answer questions.
0: But but uh, you've got what thirteen fourteen chapters. Right out of the gate, one thing I noticed reading was the titles of the chapters. <laughs> Just uh, you know. I looked at the table of contents as I do when I'm cracking open any book. And I just, I want to, uh, uh, I want to zoom out and I want a good overview of, okay, what's the narrative here I'm about to step into. And I just loved the names of your chapters. Uh, what hum, what human being acts this way is chapter <laughs> one. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, your first sales training class at Burroughs right. Corporation you know, which became Unisys, we all know. Right. Uh, but it was kind of a dark picture that you painted in chapter one <laughs> to kind of set the tone for, you know, the salespeople out there that are probably sitting in those training sessions uh, thinking, you know, do I have to sell out to sell? You know, can, yeah. I not, can I not be me? Can I not be authentic? And that, I thought, resonated big time with me and right out of the gate in chapter one.
1: Well, such a, it was, I had no idea what to expect going into sales, right? I'd, nobody in my family had been in sales. Uh, yeah, like I guess I had a grandfather was in auto sales, but uh, yeah, I didn't have ever really experienced that at that time. I had no sort of concept of what selling cars was like, but yeah, it was a shock, <laughs> a shock to the system, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and yeah, as I talk about in the book is, is, you know the guy that was in charge of the training class after I'd been there for two weeks thought I was particularly ill-suited for a career in sales because yeah I was I was considered too analytical and not uh, not salesy enough and yeah. <laughs> and you would think that that would have changed that perspective about what we need in our sellers would have changed over the years but again you know, part of the motivation for writing the book was that it hasn't. You, know, you still see so many sales positions, the descriptions that are written and the type of people that they describe that they want, that it's like, why? I mean, first of all, you know, have you ever asked your buyers what they need in your salespeople? Right. <laughs> Most people <are> like, <laughs> no, why would we do that? <laughs> it's like, well, but that's that's a perspective to have as are you hiring people that can help the buyer achieve what they want to achieve and they need to achieve? Mm -hmm. Instead of just sort of defaulting to this sort of prototypical, stereotypical image of what a salesperson is. And again, one of those things that just really hasn't evolved very much. I I still see, to this day, and I periodically go online and go through job boards just to see what people are saying. And yeah, I mean, how many times I see the words hunter and closer still in job descriptions serves sort of depressing actually. Uh, cause what's a closer. I mean, I, I challenge people all the time. What's a closer. Good for you. I mean, so I don't know. You're probably like me It's like, how many times have you been in the room when your buyer made their decision?
0: Probably zero.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's some sales, car sales, insurance sales, you know, there's some where obviously you will be some transactional, but in general, B2B world is you're not there when they make a decision. What's, what's a closer? Yeah. Uh, well, I,
0: I think you bring up a, a great point about, you know, getting feedback from the buyers on how they want to be sold or how they want to partner with you. You know, I, I love sales development, as you know. And oh, yeah. I, like you, I'm, I'm that guy, you know, I'm peeking over the fence at job descriptions on LinkedIn on how the sales development profession is being conveyed to the world mm-hmm. through the job descriptions. And it's very cookie cutter, Yep, a lot of the same language and vernacular that has really been part of job descriptions for at least a decade. Oh, and indeed. as you know, for the most part, these are professionals who are making the first impression with prospects, they're the ones you know, directly and indirectly branding for the company in the marketplace through their outreach efforts, through their mm-hmm. uh, initial phone calls, through video messages that they're doing. And you would think it would behoove sales development hiring managers to reach out to customers and ask, how would you like to be contacted? What's the first impression... You prefer mm-hmm. when you're hearing from a company for the, for the first time? Mm-hmm. What would you like them to call out? How would you like them to come at you? But it's right. just not done. It's, at least it's not done in mass.
1: Well, I think that what I've done in the past for clients I've consulted with is those that, not uniformly, those that were interested in pursuing this, is yeah, we created almost like the equivalent of a net promoter score about our sellers. So we had, on a 6 month basis we would survey our buyers and come up with a quantitative measure an index we called it at the time of that sort of summarize their impressions of their interactions with their buyers and with their sellers excuse me and yeah you know, we didn't take it down to the individual seller level in terms of you know hey here's feedback from the buyers about you per se we didn't want to you know make it about the individual seller cuz Yeah, it wasn't a blame thing. It's like, what's the impression? What's the perception? Are we being helpful? We all know the accounts and so on. So it wasn't like the information completely blind. But, but then you at least have some information. You know, if you're an enablement manager, a sales leader, saying, "Well, I'm going to make a decision about sales training for 2022." Sure, on what basis? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're looking at numbers. We see these holes. This person seems to, you know. Based on listening to calls, we think this person's deficient in this area, so on. Great, that's useful. But if you talk to your buyers, are they getting from you what they need? And how does that play then into your training plans? And when I ask that question of most sales leaders, the response is crickets, right? Mm -hmm. Because we haven't done that. Mm -hmm. So how do we truly say, well, I'm committed to creating a sort of buyer-centric approach to selling and a buyer-centric culture if we don't ever talk to our buyers about this process of which they're the equal partners in.
0: You know, what's trending right now is product led growth. Yes. PLG, a lot of companies. Let's lead with the product, lead with the product, a lot of benefit to that. Hmm? You know, let people take the, right the car, yeah, take the car for a spin yep. sooner than later. Yep. Um, uh, what, what's your take on that? Do you think that's less buyer centric, more buyer centric? Doesn't matter. What do you think?
1: <laughs> well, it's hard to say, look, product led growth is gonna be the same in all categories of products, right?
0: Fair. Because yeah.
1: You've got a range of products. So things that are more transactional, a lot of SaaS products, sure, why not? Because the value that the buyer needs from a seller just to take that first step is relatively small. But if you're saying, look, I'm trying to penetrate a big account, is product led growth the way they do that? You know, sort of nibble at it and then Go in, well yeah, they get to try and buy and then we'll get engaged. Yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a big believer that if you're trying to set yourself up to sell to big accounts, then go sell to big accounts, <laughs> right? Is go right. develop the relationships, go develop the connections you need with the, the stakeholders to understand what their problems are and ask the questions and and why you know, why sort of do a sort of incremental introduction into the account if it's a target account? Go sell to it. Um, so I think, it, yeah, it has its place. It's just, you know, part of what I think it it does is I think it feeds into this, <sighs> feeds into a lack of comfort that a lot of people have with <laughs> doing outreach. And, you know, they think it's going to simplify that whole thing Is you know, we'll just sort of, we're not going to need to do a bunch of outreach because we're just going to have people sort of take the initiative, our buyers take the initiative on this. And I don't know. Haven't we sort of been through this before with the freemium models? We have. Yeah. So it is a bit of a repackaging. I get it. I understand the motivations behind it. I think there some motivations are less obvious than others. Um, but yeah, it'll work for some. Sure.
0: Well, it brings us back to the book. Yeah. You know, um, Chapter two and three are titled stand out or sell out and selling to humans. What your buyers need from you. Pretty clear what we're talking about. Or what I love about this as well, Andy is, you know, you, the first half of the book, you're speaking to the sellers and then you pause halfway through the book. And you actually title the chapter an intermission where it's right. almost like there's an aside conversation that mm-hmm. happens with the sales leaders and I note or I noted in reading the book that you don't really talk about the sales leaders as leaders, you label them as bosses, and I think that was <laughs> that's a big one, especially those who are you know teaching the selling out way of of right. sales. Uh, so anyway, I liked that, and I took note of it. but stand out or sell out. You know, you you kick off chapter two with pushy, self-interested, lazy, uninformed, clueless. Buyers often use these adjectives to describe salespeople. And then you offer a chart. Hey, take a look at this chart of individual sales mindsets and attributes and see which column most closely resembles where you are now. And then you list all the different characteristics. So it's It's a great right out of the gate self-assessment. You know, how good am I at this? And what what do I think describes me as a seller?
1: Yeah. And I think that the point I was trying to make is that as humans and as sellers, we're not all one thing or another, right? So if you envision, as I sort of starkly laid out, between a selling out and selling in as the ends of a spectrum, opposite ends of a spectrum, it's just trying to assess, self assess where you are currently between the poles because we're all a mix, right? Me, I'm sure I've got attributes that I need to get better at as well. We all do. Um, Same, for sure. Sure. But I think the thing about sales that oftentimes, increasingly let's say, is is overlooked. is It requires intentionality to do it well. You have to be intentional about self-assessing. You have to be pragmatic about it. You have to be intentional about Every interaction you have with a buyer about what, what's the value I'm going to provide to them in this interaction it's going to help them move closer to making a decision. And when you can be more intentional is your odds of success go up. Because you're being conscious and, again, and intentional about helping the buyer. If you're just going to be cookie-cutter, robotic, completely process-driven, then, yeah, you're not. And this is the opportunity for sellers is to say, ah, right? I'm dealing with another human being. I need to be cognizant of what they need from me, which means I need to be intentional about it.
0: We all have finely tuned BS meters, too.
1: <laughs> yes, we do. Well, and I've referenced this in the book, is that, that uh, Jonah Berger from Wharton wrote this book called The Catalyst about persuasion, and, and he cites in their Research that shows that as human beings, we universally resist being persuaded. And yet, There are dozens, if not hundreds, of sales books with the titles, you know, how to along the lines of how to master the art of persuasion. Yeah. And yeah, I don't believe persuasion's an art. As I talk about the book, I think it's a a blunt hammer that, that salespeople resort to using when they're not effective at learning how to influence their buyers.
0: And you talk about that in chapter six. In fact, it's titled, Influence Rules, Persuasion Drools. <laughs> and uh, what I love is you say there's a reason Dale Carnegie didn't title his classic book, How to Win Friends and Persuade People.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just look at the definitions of persuasion. Persuasion is about basically using force to get somebody. They talk about you know prevailing upon someone, you know, change someone's mind through the use of force, basically. Yeah. yeah Domination. It's <laughs> yeah, it's coercive. At heart, it's coercive. Um, mm-hmm. Where influence is about taking actions that have an impact or an effect upon the thinking and actions of others. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have an, an impact or an effect on the thinking and actions of others. And so, you know, as I frame in the book, okay, do you think your job as a seller is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product If you do, then you're going to undertake, I think, one set of actions. But if you think your job is to go out and listen to your buyer, to understand what's truly most important to them, the most important thing to them, and then help them get it, then you're going to pursue a different path of actions and different set of behaviors.
0: So that book, again, I took note of it as Jonah Berger's The
1: Catalyst. The Catalyst, yes.
0: Okay, noted. That's one that's got to go uh, on my list. (laughs) I haven't read that one yet.
1: It's an interesting book he was on the show. we don't necessarily agree about everything, but um smart guy, smart book and because I think that that you know, he frames a lot of uh, this idea sort if of, you narrow it down to selling is is you're trying to get people to change their minds, and I think that that's just the wrong perspective. I think from sales we want to talk about helping people make up their minds exactly so it's always about I think if you look at the world through more of the persuasion lens then you're saying, yeah, I'm trying to get somebody to change their mind. And I think if you look at through the influence lens, you're saying I'm trying to help people make up their minds. I love that.
0: Chapter four and five, four is you're not the boss of me. Seize control of how you sell. This was a good, good chapter because the theme is about taking control starts with thinking for yourself and you make a great point by saying bosses can order you to follow their suggestions, but if you do that and then don't hit your number, they could fire you.
1: Yeah, who gets fired? They, Not them. You.
0: Yeah, they don't care that you were acting on their orders. Right. You didn't hit the number. See you later. Uh, so yeah, you talk I, about you. T- oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say you start to talk about selling in, which means to sell from the inside out.
1: Right. Yeah, I I can't begin to say. How many times in my career, and you're probably the same thing as where you know, you're dealing with your boss and, and they make a suggestion or you know, want to direct you to do something, you just think about it and go, "That's just nuts." <laughs> and, and so as we come and grow in our career, we're going to have multiple influences. You know it's bosses, peers, customers. I learned learn so much from my customers about how to sell um, is as a seller. I make the point in the book is that no one cares as much about you and your success as you do. Mm -hmm. And you have to take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And even if it means pushing back from time to time and saying, no, I think there's a better way to do this. And I'm willing to be held accountable for my results doing it this way. And more sales leaders should step up to allow their people this autonomy. In fact, the science is pretty clear that when you give humans more agency over the choices they make, they're going to be more creative and productive and innovative in how they get the job done. And so instead of being fearful about the fact that you've got people who aren't conforming to the metrics you've laid out for all of your sellers, encourage it. Right? Instead of saying, well, everybody needs to have 5X pipeline coverage, yay, you've got Ralph. Ralph does great with 2x pipeline coverage. He's right. crushing it. That's so rather right. than freak out about the fact that Ralph doesn't have 5x, let Ralph go at 2x. That's fine. But I encounter so many managers today, so just fearful to say, "No, this person's coloring outside the lines and it doesn't conform with the data set that we're tracking. So uh, I'm not happy. <laughs> it's like, so grow up. You know, as a manager, your job is no different than a seller in many respects. If the seller's job is to listen to the buyers to understand what's the most important thing to them and then help them get that, as a sales manager your job is, I believe, starts with listening to your salespeople, talk to your sales understand what's the most important thing to them and then help them get that. And if you do that you're going to succeed.
0: Sounds like a pretty simple formula. Yeah. I mean, at face value, it's pretty straightforward. Um, And yet
1: you hear all these managers say, well, I don't have time to coach.
0: Oh, totally. Well,
1: what the hell are you doing?
0: Yeah, right.
1: That's first on your list. That's the first priority. You have the same responsibility. If your managers are saying to you, I I need this report, and you're saying, well, I don't have time to coach. I don't have time to develop my people. Then you have the obligation to push back. Because you're not going to be successful at what you do unless, you can, again, as a manager, no one cares about your success as much as you do. Do the right thing.
0: Well, that's what you're saying in in um, in this chapter. In fact, you said you, you say step one is taking control of the situation, and you were just talking about you know being accountable, taking ownership, you know, running your business within the business. Mm-hmm. And it applies to everybody. It applies to the to the individual contributors as well as the leaders, yes. Uh, you know, uh, as we know, a lot of leaders, they literally see themselves at the top of the org chart versus the bottom, you know, and if they're seeing themselves at the bottom of the org chart, they're serving up and into the organization right. through coaching people, through listening to their people, through removing obstacles from the paths that their people are on or want uh-huh. to be on. Uh, and it's, it's not that tough to flip that switch, in terms of your mindset and approach to, you know, sell in even to your own people.
1: Absolutely. And, and again, I think people default to, to the easy. Yeah. And yeah, managing the metrics and the KPIs is easy, quote unquote, easy. Having to get involved with individuals, that's a little bit more messy, but that's the path to success.
0: On that note, chapter five is titled Death to salesy, and this is where you, inter- this is where you introduce the four pillars. You, you right. basically kick off the chapter by saying step two is to refuse to act in ways that buyers automatically resist. Being salesy is a way of acting that universally makes buyers squirm. Salesy mm-hmm. is selling out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, I, 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 it's, I like to frame it sort of a question. And is it's, and I ask this in groups when I speak in public and to groups so that we're training or teaching is, so what's the one question a buyer will never ask you? And this is in the book as well. Is, is Yeah, buyer will never ask you, say, hey, Ralph, I um, really like your product, but I just think we can buy from you because you're just not salesy enough. Could you be more salesy? <laughs> I,
0: mean, I, I have yet to hear that question.
1: It never comes up. I mean, I've, somebody raised their hand once when I was talking to a group said, well, a customer will never ask you to raise their prices. And I said, that's not true. I've had that happen many times. Right? But no one's going to ask you to be more salesy. It has no value for you as a seller. has no value for the buyer. And yet, this is, in the majority of the cases. this is how we're enabling and training our salespeople to act. Yep. And It really does emanate from this this basic perspective that I just talked about a few minutes ago is what is your job? Yeah, we're enabling sellers to think that their job is to persuade people to buy their products instead of their job being is to listen to really understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and then help them get that. And so the first perspective is selling is something I do to you. Hmm. The second perspective is something we do with you. Mm-hmm. And that's what selling is. Selling is a collaborative process that we undertake with our buyers. Yeah, you know, outside of purely transactional, hey, give me your credit card. Yeah. In the B2B world, it's it's collaborative.
0: Absolutely. Even even in in many respects in the transactional cycle, it's collaborative. Has
1: it can to be. be. Right. But you're, there can be a scale, right? At some point where, but yeah, definitely for the most part, it's collaborative. So mm-hmm. What are you collaborating on? Well, we're collaborating on helping the buyer achieve the thing that's most important to them. And yeah, it's a point I don't get into in real depth in the book, but it's one that I keep emphasizing people is when you think about it, as my experience has been, and again, this is selling a range of products over the years, is that in every opportunity you're working on, there is one thing that's more important than all the others. And it's your job to find out what that is and who it's most important to. And if you know those things, you're setting yourself up for success. I remember early in my career, I was selling mini computer systems, you know, (laughs) filled a room full of equipment that had about, you know, one, I think I calculated, had like one 500,000th of the power of my iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) But it took up the whole room. But it took up the whole room and today's dollars cost close to a million bucks. Yeah. (laughs) You know, storage data storage was a thousand dollars per megabyte <laughs> think about that a thousand dollars per megabyte Um, know I had, went through this very competitive deal with this this large construction company um, in the East Bay area of uh, the San Francisco Bay area way out in Brentwood you, mm-hmm. Ralph you know Brentwood is I do and very competitive deal we had to uh, we we're selling computer systems to automate all their accounting and uh, the job cost accounting in particular is really important and I we went through so many levels of demonstration, in-depth demonstrations, detailed demonstration of all the packages. I think there's like eight or nine different modules, accounting modules we were selling. And we're going back and visiting the and we won eventually. It was exhausting. We won. It was a big deal. And we're going back after like, I don't know, three or six months after the implementation. And they're running just one module. Wow. And the billing module. And I go to the CEO, I said, What's going on here? Yeah, he goes, what are you well, doing? What are you doing? Yeah, you, know, you, you you killed me on this. He says, Oh, yeah, but billing is what's paying for this whole thing. And it's like, Oh, send this light bulb. <laughs> it's like, Oh, all Got those it. other things were nice to have. This was the thing that was trying. And I, yeah, I was completely unaware. So for me, that was like a lesson to say, Okay, there's a, there's a one thing, and I'd serve. Every opportunity I've worked subsequent to that, it's like, what's that one thing? Mm -hmm. And if you can find it out, well, then, yeah, you're on the road to success. But the path to learning that comes through your ability to connect with your stakeholders on a human level, to be able to earn the trust and the credibility so they give you permission to stick your nose in their business to the degree that you can learn this. You know, There's this, this conception that somehow... If you're a seller and you ask questions of your buyers, they're all going to start answer them uniformly, and they don't. Mm. They don't share equally with everybody. It's based on what they think about you and their perception of you and their value that you're going to bring to you. They're not. They don't share the same. Just because you ask the question doesn't mean you get the answer.
0: Well, this is a great segue into the four pillars. Can we talk yes. about them for a minute?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my. As I write about in the book, and my experience has been and my, my strong belief is that your ability to succeed in, in a sales world is based on your ability to develop these four human skills. I call it connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And I call it human skills because when we're talking about selling out and the, behavior, the salesy behaviors, those are all learned behaviors. No one comes out of the womb <laughs> like that, right? But we're all wired to connect with other people. We're social animals. Um, we're wired to want to use our curiosity because curiosity is how we navigate unfamiliar parts of the world around us. It's how we learn. We're, we're wired to want to understand, use our curiosity to reach a point of understanding so we understand the world. So we have empathy that derives from the understanding with people that we deal with. We're wired to want to give because it makes us feel good to give. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are sort of core human attributes that enable you to be able to connect, to build trust and credibility with the buyer, to be given permission to stick your nose in business and ask great questions, to keep asking until you get to the point where you truly understand what's most important to them. And when you have that understanding, what's most important to them it then informs how you give and give generously to help them achieve their goals. So those four pillars.
0: And you ask, how will you know you're on the right track when your buyer tells you you don't act like a salesperson?
1: (laughs) Best compliment in the world you can get. I mean, that's what I talk about in the book when the customer told me, I was just like, oh yeah, okay, that's how you're supposed to be doing this. Um, That's As a seller, that's it. I mean, you're not hiding the fact you're in sales. I know a lot of people want to cloak it with their titles or so on, and but there's no hiding. The buyer knows why you're there, but you have complete control over how they experience that with you, um, and that's what you want.
0: And that's where the intermission happens in the book, where you you pause and you speak with the sales leaders, and it's almost like you offer them a juncture to you know change things for the better at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. You can empower your sales team to sell differently and sell better, and sell from a more human.
1: Right. Yeah, it's a choice you make as as a manager. Do you want to be a leader that inspires people to a higher level of of performance, or do you want to be just a boss that just micromanages their daily existence? And there's a big difference between the two. And when we look at issues like high levels of churn among sales teams and burnout and depression and so on, it's you know, these things are all linked. Yeah, you know, We can create an environment where people want to work and want to do the best and are, as I said, given the autonomy and the agency to make that happen. Or you can just be a meat grinder and just grind them up and pump them out. And, you know, too often these days, I think the sales world is a meat grinder. It's sad.
0: It really is. And uh, I really like how you say, um, you know, if the leaders want uh, their team to become the best sales version of themselves, they need to have the autonomy to experiment and fail on their own terms. So let them do their thing.
1: Yeah. And what's the worst that can happen? Exactly. I mean, don't get nervous about, (laughs) don't get nervous. Empower people instead. And if some, I mean, I had a conversation with somebody early in the sort of arc of this, this podcast and, and this person had written a book about sales management. And we got into this sort of heated argument where her contention was that if you had somebody that was on your team as a seller and they're making their numbers but they're doing it in a way that didn't conform to the process. She felt, as a manager, your obligation, and she wrote about this in a book, your obligation was to fire that person. Yeah. Because they'd be too disruptive. Yeah. And I just have 180 degree difference. If they're not being disruptive, but all they're doing is succeeding on slightly different terms, mm-hmm. you want to encourage that. Yep. Yeah. It's not, you know, for every, how many salespeople in the United States? Five million, roughly, something like that. Sounds right. Yeah, that means there are five million sales processes that exist, and you have to own up to it as a manager. There are five million because everybody's going to do it just slightly differently. And rather than trying to put people into a box, enable them, free mm-hmm. them up. I have this quote, one of my favorite quotes, I have in the book uh, talking about Clint Dempsey. If people are soccer fans, you know him. this is. <laughs> The show could be subtitled The Soccer Show. Um, yeah. Because I talk about it a lot. And Clint Dempsey was one of the great players in the United States history. And I have a quote in a book from, from his boss, Bruce Arena, or his manager, Bruce Arena, had managed him both on the men's national team, U.S. men's national team, as well as um, club team. And somebody said, well, you know, why is Clint so successful? And Arena just said, because he tries shit. Yeah. And as sellers, that's what you have to do. You have to try shit. Just try something different. What your path you're on isn't working, don't double down. Do something different. Try other things.
0: In the chapter on understanding, you quote Kurt Lewin.
1: Yes. Saying,
0: if you want to truly understand something, try to change it.
1: Yeah. That's so important, right? Is is two things. One that works both for you as a seller, right? If you're trying to understand what you're doing as a seller, try to change it. Same applies to your buyers. If you're truly trying to understand what's most important to your buyer and help your buyer understand what's most important to them, try to change what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, change is the great catalyst.
0: I mean, they're clearly trying to change or, you know, they're discerning whether or not to make a change or else they wouldn't be evaluating your offering in the first
1: place. Right. They wouldn't be spending the time with you. Right. And so through the what I talk about through the selling in motion through the four pillars is are you earning more time and attention from your buyers I and mean, that's your that's your your goal on one level is like yeah if I don't if I can't command the time and attention of my buyer if I can't be credible enough if I can't be trustworthy enough if I can't demonstrate that I can provide value to them then in a very intentional way then yeah I'm not going to get any more time and attention mm. And it gets withdrawn very quickly. So I talked about earlier in the book and this is something that doesn't get talked enough about. I talk about it a lot, but it's, I don't hear other people talking about it. And it needs to be talked about more is what's your buyer trying to accomplish, right? In this process, what are they trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. What they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make a good decision with the least investment of their time and attention, Right. This is what your buyer's trying to do. These people, you know, if you have a buying committee, they've all been dragged out of their their primary jobs to come together to help evaluate and make a, a decision. They don't want to spend endless amount of time doing that. They want to do it efficiently, with the least investment again of their time and attention. They're not trying to make the absolute best decision, they're trying to make a good enough decision. Well help them do that.
0: At one point, you write 80% of buyers earn zero return invested in you.
1: Yeah, that's from either a Gartner or a Forrester, um, Forrester study of CEOs. And, I, and I've since read another, another book by um, co-authors Stephen Tim, or Timmy, yeah, I can't remember, and Melody Astley called Insight-Led Selling, Adopt an Executive Mindset, Build Credibility, Communicate with Impact. And they did a lot of research with, with C-level people that basically substantiated the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but actually, (laughs) and there, they had an interesting fact in their study. You'd you'd appreciate this is I forget what the data source was, but it's quoted in the book saying that some survey is that only 19% of sales managers in B2B space thought that their sellers could act as trusted advisors. Wow. Considered trusted advisors. And I thought, wow. "Wow, that sort of speaks to the problem right there, doesn't it?
0: Breaks who's my sp- heart.
1: Who's responsible for that?
0: Right? They are. <laughs> the managers. Yeah, exactly. They are. That's the organization. You know, it reminds me of the Edwards Deming quote, "Every system is perfectly designed just, to get like, the results it gets, and yeah, that, that is a great, a great illustration.
1: Choice. right. I mean, it's like it's like people just, yeah, we're doing these things we just because we can. And people don't ever think about, well, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And I think this is so true in sales. Today. Yeah, we can create these systems where at the end of the day, it generates a 20% win rate. But should we? Because the consequences of doing that, cost of doing that oftentimes is, is we're slashing and burning through a, a TAM that's going to become untouchable at some point because we just We've bombed, carpet bombed them with, with emails and, and outreach, and we're exhausting them without even talking to them.
0: We're setting an example, whether we like it or not. And yeah. as, as you know, selling to the enterprise, for example, if you kind of blow those first impressions, you risk not getting back in there for years, if at oh, all.
1: If at all. And this is actually I, I touch on this in this book, but I, I talked more about that specifically in my second book, uh, Amp Up Your Sales, which was. Yeah. There's science about the power of perception. And there's a professor, I think she's at Syracuse, has done a lot of work on this, is that, A, we form a perception of someone within 250 milliseconds. The time it takes to blink an eye. Yeah. I'm looking at you. I formed a perception of you. Right? <laughs> and I have no hair. <laughs> you have no hair. Right. Must be smart. Right. All this intelligence burned the hair off his head.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And then the second thing that the science has found is that perceptions are very sticky. So even when you're confronted with evidence that contradicts the perception, people are loath to change their minds. Yeah, you a know, perfect example of this is, you know, maybe you have an, <laughs> a neighbor that was falsely accused of a crime. In your mind, that person's always a criminal, not to be trusted, right? Even though they were completely exonerated. Yeah, that seed's been planted. That seed's been planted. And even though you've evidenced that this person had nothing to do with it at all, in your mind, there's still that seed of doubt. And so, yeah, these first impressions we make are lasting. And so if we're not intentional about creating a good first impression, yeah, we could be out of the game for a long time until a new person came in.
0: And that actually means not thinking about yourself when making those first impressions. Think of others Put a 10 on that person's forehead. Let them bring it down to a two. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, again, it requires thought. Mm. I mean, f- selling, I believe, is about thinking. It's a thinking person's business. Those, my experience has been, is those who are most consistently successful. I'm not talking about some you know, mythological top performers. I'm just talking about people who are good at what they do year in, year out. They're thoughtful. They're thinking in advance. They're intentional about what they do. And that's so important
0: that's at critical. every step of the way. Critical. And I've seen it time and time again with the A players I've worked with. They're employing critical thinking on one hand. They're employing creative thinking on the other. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're thinking through everything every single detail. It's the little things, making the big things happen, the Mm -hmm. follow-up and follow-through, just being mindful uh, of the selling and buying experience that they Mm -hmm. want, uh, the people they work with to have is just so important. And it just takes a minute of time to just stop, reflect, and think through what we're trying to do here. And I love that you asked that quote or posed the question, you know, what is it that the buyer is trying to accomplish? Pretty simple mm-hmm. question, but it's it's the goldmine. It unlocks the goldmine if you can get that answer.
1: Well, right, and it's always there. It's always there. It's a story I talked about before, the, the computer and the, the billing system, the customer in the billing system. I've got a number of stories like that, you know, that when I the, had the seller that was working for me focus on finding out what that one thing was, it made all the difference. And these, you might say, well, that's kind of a Small thing it is, small, but it's big, right? It's, it's huge. I wrote something not that long ago on LinkedIn saying, "I really don't think that you know there's good sellers and bad sellers. I think you know there are people that think and you know, are thoughtful about things, and those who don't. You know the differences are really small between what you might consider a good seller and a bad seller, and so everybody has this capability of 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 making that." that transition, it's, it's small things that make a difference. And that's true with customers making their decisions. You know The difference between winning and losing, and I think you and I have talked about this before, is, is you know, if I were to ask you, okay, well, what was your margin of victory on your last deal that you won? You know, like in sports, well, we won by 14 points. Okay. How much did you win by? You have no way of knowing. No, You have no way of knowing. So you have to yeah. assume that I just need to be 1% better than the other person. That's to your point about paying attention to detail, mm-hmm. being thoughtful, being mindful about the impression you're creating and the experience the buyer is having. These aren't you know, world-shattering things or skills you need to acquire. These are, these are human skills we all have at heart.
0: And it goes back to that question you asked earlier of the sales leader. You know what, what would it mean to you and to the business if we were to improve it, that win rate, I think is what you were talking about, by 1%. Yeah. You know what does? How can you quantify what that one percent means to you? That's just it. Takes some thought.
1: Sure, but it's not that hard. You know what on an average customer's lifetime value is, right? So oh, no, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not arguing. I, I no, no, no I don't My thing is just to encourage people to do it. Is you have the we everybody has this data. Yeah, you can figure it out pretty quickly. As an individual, you can figure it out quickly what it would mean for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just. It's thinking about the things that really move move the needle for you.
0: Well, jumping to the conclusion of the book, you talk about not being a sales zombie, and I'm bringing this up because of what we're talking about right now. Right. Uh, you you say in the book, I think Hollywood's continuing fascination with zombies comes from the fact that there are so many of them among us. They look the same, they sound the same, but they've been unplugged. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the thing that that made us want to look at them, listen to them. It's gone. They're still here, but they're just waiting to be embalmed. And I think, and I know you think, the same applies to many salespeople.
1: Yeah, yeah. They've they sort of <laughs> retired in place. I think to some to some degree, and it just there's so few professions that reward. Growth the way ours does, and rewards in an investment that you make in yourself the way that ours does. I know most careers do, but you know this is one that's such a performance based profession. I think it's sort of the outsized rewards for the investments you make. Yeah, and yeah, yeah why why be a sales zombie? And that that quote, first of all, is from a, one of my favorite <laughs> series of books written by a guy named Timothy Hallinan uh, about a character called Junior Bender, who's a a, I know you love books. It's, he's a uh, he's a thief that basically other criminals hire to be a detective for them to solve their problems. Um, very entertaining, very very funny. And but yeah, this it caught my eye that quote when I first read the the novel it was a few years ago. I cut and pasted. It, it was like, yeah, it's just so descriptive. You know, people we see in sales are sort of treading water, um, hoping things will get better, and. You have to take charge of that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen on its own. Right. And the choice is really up to you. And if you can't make those changes in the position you're at, in the company you're at, then go find a better fit. You know, I think the fit is, is not talked enough about. It is you want to find a place where you're a fit. You know, you could have a bad experience in one organization. You don't succeed to the level that you want. Yeah, is it you or is it the organization or a combination of both? And so maybe, yeah, I just need to find a place that's a better fit. We've all seen stories of like professional athletes that on one team, it's just not happening. You know, like a highly rated draft choice in football, it's just not happening on one team. They get moved to another organization and suddenly they play up to their potential. Mm -hmm. Happens all the time. It's, It's fit. You know, fit is really important. It's our environment. It affects how we think and how we act on a daily basis. So, if you want to really take control of how you sell and take control of your own destiny, you got to be in a situation where there's a level of fit and you have to look for that intentionally.
0: Yeah. And you'll know intuitively if, the, if it's a bad fit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just remember coming as that uh, we got acquired by another company and the CEO president of the acquiring company, just a bad person. Mm -hmm. you know, managed through yelling and screaming and intimidation and, and the thing that was, it was almost sort of like Stockholm syndrome because, you know, the senior executives that had been in the company of the acquiring company before they acquired us, they all liked this guy. And I was like, why? why? (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd been an executive staff meeting and seen him reduce one of you guys to tears. Yeah. And And so that company was based on the East Coast. I I was on the West Coast. And I was running, after we got acquired, I took over international sales for the combined entity and was running that. And uh, I just decided that every month when I was supposed to be on the East Coast for executive staff meetings, that I would have a customer meeting in Europe or Asia. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) I enjoyed what I was doing, but I just didn't want anything to do with that guy. And eventually they came to me after about seven months after the acquisition and said, uh, if you want to stay at the company, you need to start coming to the meetings. And I said, okay, see you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Life's too short for that. Don't it is. Don't put yourself in those situations.
0: Well, uh, the the book's called Sell Without Selling Out. Talk to us about how we can get it into the hands of a lot of sales leaders and sales teams because, I mean, we're partial, of course, Andy, right. but so many need it. So many need this yeah. book.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, contact me if you're interested in talking about how you can get the book into the hands of your sales team and the the uh, additional sort of benefits that can come with with doing that. Whether it's having me speak to your team or working with them, uh, yeah, contact me either on LinkedIn, direct message me on LinkedIn, I'm um, all over the place there, and or at Andy at andypaul.com. Come visit andypaul.com, learn more about the book as well. And of course, you can pre-order it uh, everywhere books are sold.
0: I love it. Well, I, I enjoyed reading it. And what I really enjoyed is it's one that I'll continue to reference and recommend. It's something that I'll, I'll crack open probably every quarter or every year and um, you know, return to a lot of the insights and takeaways that I got from that initial reading. So thanks for writing it, Andy. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk to you about it.
1: Oh well Ralph, well, thank you. It's sort of unexpected. It's not exactly what we had planned, but it worked out fine. I loved <laughs> it. I, I had I, a great I, time. I did too. And I I enjoy the opportunity to talk about it because you can tell I'm I'm passionate about it. This is is uh sometimes so excited about because it's as I said it's it's the, the message for the moment and uh, it's just the path forward for, for all of us. So anyway, appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well it's infectious, so
1: I appreciate the passion. All right, Ralph. We'll talk to you next time. All right, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ralph Barcy, for sharing his insights with us today. And also I want to thank you again for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.